All right, I'm back. Grab four twisted teas. That should uh, hold me over for a bit. Do that be enough? Probably not. But I'll probably have to make a run in the middle. But hold me for a bit. What's up, Ramito? Hey, what's up, Kyle? How's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing well. Just working on uh, another uh, video from my last trip to Nicaragua. It'll be coming out in a week or so. Oh, nice. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I was uh, just watching your uh, documentary a little bit ago. Oh, cool. That's what's up. Yeah, it's really good. I'm really enjoying it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I think you did a very good job with it. It's very informative, like very well done, too. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal is to make it like an intros guide to the Sandinista Revolution. So, you know, that's, that's yeah, the goal. Definitely, definitely hits that mark. Cool. Thank you, man. I'm hoping to go to Cuba this year, too. So uh, oh, if I do go... Sweet. I'm going to make a Cuba version as well, so we'll see. Oh, yeah, that'd be fucking dope. I would definitely love to watch that. Yeah, because a lot of the documentaries about anti-imperialist countries tend to be like, you know, oh, kind of liberal, kind of like, oh, you know, they started off good and then they turned bad and this and that. So I feel like with my docs, my goal is to make it also like chill, to not like take myself too seriously, so to speak, you know, to make it kind of approachable and just like a regular person from the U.S. going. Absolutely, yeah. No, like, I love when you say, like, oh, it's kind of liberal. It's like, oh, yeah, they did some good things, but then they turned bad. It just makes me think of fucking <laughs> the Parenti um, clip where he's, like, Noam Chomsky's talking about, like, the, the communist thugs who ride into power on the backs of the masses and then turn, like... Right. The com- yeah, they turn into communist thugs. It's like, oh, fuck off, Noam. Right. No one cares. Exactly. Are you guys talking about Gonzalo? Or Gonzalo? No, no, but we no, can't. I just assume that when, again, because I had to restart my computer because my internet is just shit here. So I'm coming in, in the middle of it. But my favorite tweet was um, it was like the day after, and it was like I woke up this morning and realized Gonzalo didn't. So it's a good day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Damn. What's interesting is that within the Latin American left, he's not even relevant. Like I don't know how to like people don't even hate him. Like I mean some of the old guard like whatever but he never had like a mass following outside of random cults in the first world you, you know what i mean like he wasn't like like I, i've been to latin america several times i've been to many latin american communist events and gonzalo is not even like ever once mentioned you know like as like a fidel or like a che or yeah no it's just weird western maoists who like right. uphold him still right right it's like, yeah, and then, and then the same assholes that will call like us like revisionists. And it's like Gonzalo literally created Maoism through revisionism. Like, shut the fuck right. up. Yeah, it's just it, it's just odd. You know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of times it's it's like a stage. I feel like it's it's a stage in communist development. I feel like we all kind of go through that stage where when we first learn about communism and it's exciting and you're like, you know, you're all about like tearing shit down and being like edgy and like being the most radical and the most woke. But as you get older and you work with real people in real life and you see that building socialism is all about building alliances with all kinds of people and not just being an ideological purist, then you start to see, you start to grow out of it. But I think unfortunately some people haven't, you know, it's like, it's like a weird, I like to compare it to the way that sometimes I mean, I'm an atheist, but I like to compare it to the way that evangelicals will talk about Catholics. 
where they're like, we're the real Christians. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, it's all good. I, I at this point, I, I like to consider myself a, a, a non-denominational communist. I'll work with anybody who is against imperialism and capitalism and, and building unity. You know, I think that's really what's important. And um, I have friends from all different kinds of backgrounds that are, that we disagree, but I'm still good friends. And I feel like that's missing on the left nowadays. It's just being able to be okay with like disagreeing with a comrade, but still working with mm-hmm. them, you know? Oh yeah. Like I, I love that. Um, that meme from Curb Your Enthusiasm where it's like, after you spend all day arguing with your comrades, it's like, fuck you. I'll yeah. see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ward and I just live our lives through memes. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> know, my brain works really weird where it's like memes will just ingrain themselves or like different quotes and shit like that. Where it's like literally when you're talking about like, oh, they'll try to find like the edgiest fucking ideology and just stick with it. And it's like, man, if only they read angles saying how it's Marxism isn't a dogma. It's a guide to action. Right. Um, well, I'll just, uh, we can just get into it then. Uh, how much time do you have tonight, Ramito? I have about an hour 15. Okay. So like at. Um, I'm in Pacific time, so let's see, it's 3.08, so maybe like at 4.20, okay. blaze it, not just yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah. at 4.20, 4.25 around there. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, at uh, 7.15 here, I will uh, call it, and then we'll let you do like an outro or whatever. Hopefully we'll be able to get through the, get through the last 16 minutes of this video. Cool. Good luck. Yeah, I know, right? All right, let's just get into it then. everybody welcome back to the turn of this podcast i'm mike he him and tonight i'm here with ward he him and again with our special guest ramiro he him as well and we're gonna finish up talking about nicaragua hopefully we can uh, get through the last few minutes of this video but uh knowing how slowly we've been getting through it we'll uh we'll just see how much we can do i, I feel like we should be able to get through it now um and then we'll spend the rest of the time talking about uh, ramiro's own documentary and uh see if we have any good questions for ramiro to answer and give us like a good picture of the history of nicaragua and any other aspects of the picture we may not be getting. So thank you for coming back from it. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Um, all right. So let's just get into the video here. I purposely left another 30 seconds in it just so we can uh, start right off the bat just getting angry again. But uh, let's check this out. <laughs> all right. I think each victim is a tragedy. And it, it is part of war. And I think the moral responsibility for every single victim rests with the communist government of Nicaragua, just as the responsibility for every victim of World War II rests with Adolf Hitler, who initiated the conflict. And so in the same way, the communist government of Nicaragua is responsible for the armed resistance existing because it exists only because of their aggression. So, yeah, we don't have to comment on that. I just wanted to piss us off again because that was where we left off on uh, episode two or, you know, the second part of uh, our Nicaragua series. Um, I, yeah, say, I think like, I remember commenting yeah, on that. It's like, so pretty well. fucking ridiculous, man. It's so angry. <laughs> okay, we'll, uh, we'll pick back up on the video again. 
By late 1983, the realities of war, as well as Sandinista mismanagement, have eclipsed their original goals. There is rationing instead of economic development. Instead of solidarity, there is popular discontent. I am the father of a son, and I can tell you that lots of men have died in the mountains. It's not the fault of the people. It's not the fault of the people of the United States or the people of Nicaragua. It's the fault of the two governments that don't get along. That's what's happening in Nicaragua. What do you make of that, Ramiro? Because I'm not really sure what to make of that. It sounds like he's probably just another Contra sympathizer who's trying to play the both sides game and make it seem like it's a more complicated situation than it really is. Definitely. I mean, at this time, we're talking about the height of the Cold War. We're talking about the 70s and the 80s. And there's this narrative going on that the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc is just as equally bad as the imperialist bloc, the U.S., the U.K. And that narrative tends to help out the liberal wing of a lot of parties very well, especially the Liberal Party of Nicaragua, because then they can say neither Washington nor Moscow. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the strategy that was used at this time to attack the Sandinistas, even though the Sandinistas really were, in many ways, were being neglected by the Soviet Union. You have to remember that during this time, the 80s, the Soviet Union had, you know, after Brezhnev, the, the Soviet Union had given up the policy of supporting armed revolution in the global south. And at this point was asking leftists and communist movements in the global south to win power through peaceful means. And at this point was already moving in the more, I don't like to say revisionist, but you know, in this case, I think, especially in the 80s, definitely we can consider it more revisionist in the, within the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. within that line of era. So it's not even like the Soviet Union was really there helping Nicaragua a lot to begin with. So there was no assistance, basically. But even so, the, the liberals, the Western imperialists were still accusing the Sandinistas of getting full support from the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. So this tactic of, you know, making it seem like both sides are equally bad was used by a lot of liberal parties in Latin America at the time, especially at what they would call Christian Democratic parties, liberal parties. And this is the rise of Violeta Chamorro because the Chamorro family and the neoliberals who were rising to prominence around this time, they were disassociating themselves with the Somoza family, the right-wingers, the nationalists who were like openly pro-U.S., but they were also speaking out against the Sandinistas and saying, you know, we're neither for the, the right-wing Washington or the left-wing Moscow. We're this new independent third way. This is where you see this new third wayism being used in the 80s and this is something that was being used in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas and this ultimately is the rise of the liberals and Violeta Chamorro that eventually took over in 1990. Yeah I mean that makes a lot of sense and uh, yeah it, this is why I love having you here for these because uh, a lot of historical context I wouldn't get from this documentary and I'm glad that you're here to give us that. Uh, would you have words? Yeah I was just going to comment on like the framing of them saying like, oh, it's rationing instead of economic development. It's like they're still actively engaged in a revolution. They're still actively combating imperialism. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, they're not going to be able to build productive forces and build their economy when they're still actively dealing with that. Yeah. And what's so fucking wrong with rationing? Like, it was good enough for the U.S. during World War II, during wartime. Like, it's just 
bad when it fucking communists are doing it. Like mm-hmm. the framing of it is just so ridiculous and disgusting. And also, Ward, if I wanted to piss you off and make you go off on a nice long rant, I would uh, compare this to death saddle diplomacy and the whole neither Washington nor Beijing framing that everybody has about China now, because it's exactly the same thing where like you try to say that China is doing imperialism because they're building the Belt and Road Initiative or something like that and helping African countries. And it's like, it's obviously not the same thing, but you know, the comparison again is one-to-one saying that like Nicaragua is just as bad as Adolf Hitler or some shit because they moved some indigenous people out of their home to protect them or something. Yeah, man. If only there's also like Western sources that prove that debt trap diplomacy is a myth, but you Mm -hmm. know, like if only (laughs) Uh, links in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the video here. There's not going to be any change for as long as the war between the Contras and the government goes on. It's just going to get worse every day. Communism is neither peace nor happiness. We want to live in peace and happiness, and these guys are only bringing suffering to Nicaragua. All those dirty communists. It's just because of them. It's not any of the Contras that are murdering women and children. It's just, it's just the communists. Yeah, the Contras aren't, like, murdering and raping and, like, forcing drugs upon the masses, you know? Like, it's, it's the evil commies. The war threatens Sandinista's survival. They mount a major diplomatic initiative trying to come to terms with Washington. They told me that I could have a meeting with uh, Secretary Schultz. So I went, and I waited for five days, never anywhere in the world. Anywhere else have that happened? I'm waiting there in the capital of the United States for five days, and uh, and then uh, uh, eventually I'm told that the Secretary of State had to play golf in Atlanta. And, and would I not be amenable to meeting with Langhor uh, Motley? And I said, well, yes, I came very far, and I've been waiting many days, and so I met with. Mr. Motley and presented our proposal that weekend Granada was invaded and the secretary I think was still at the golf course in Atlanta. After the invasion of Grenada, the Sandinistas moved to full mobilization. The U.S. response has made it clear that it has no intention of negotiating a settlement. A diplomatic agreement would leave the Sandinistas in power and President Reagan wants them out. A nationwide civil guard is organized, in addition to the 40,000 regulars in the standing army, all in preparation for the feared American invasion. More Soviet helicopters, tanks, and heavy equipment are added to the Sandinista arsenal. I was going to say, I think it's just really uh, indicative of these authoritarian red fast tankies that they're escalating this war by asking the Soviets for more military support and pulling together all these troops just to beat up these poor, innocent Americans and the, their CIA counterparts and everything. Um, it sounds super tanky for them to just have more tanks. <laughs> um, there was something else in there. He definitely mentioned something about Reagan, commenting that Reagan obviously wants to send Denise out. But um, oh, the uh, invasion of Granada while the foreign minister of Nicaragua is just left like in the lurch for five days in Washington, just ignored. 
when it comes to trying to negotiate. And it reminded me of, I think it was Ho Chi Minh who tried to settle the Vietnam conflict peacefully before the war actually started and was just totally ignored by the U.S. politicians. And it's like, again, it's just par for the course, like ignore the communists, ignore the people who actually care about their citizens and everything, and then act surprised when there's a problem and then just go in there all aggressively and start a war. Yeah. And it's almost like people have learned from that. And so you have like the recent incident where the China ambassador uh, was speaking to the Biden administration on a Zoom call and told them to please shut up. <laughs> nice. That's badass, actually. <laughs> was that uh, Chen Weihuo by any chance? <laughs> it sounds like something he would do. Yeah, no, it was the uh, Chinese ambassador to the U.S. I can't remember yeah. his name right now. That's no, fine. Um, Ramita, did you have anything? I'll, I'll just continue with the video, if not. Yeah, I think it's important to mention as well that a lot of times anti-imperialist countries have to take certain actions that may seem reformist or not favorable to certain leftists in the West. For example, I remember in 2014 when Cuba, sorry, in 2012 when Cuba, uh, Raul Castro and Obama were in talks about normalizing relations and also talks between DPRK and, and the U.S., also, Nicolas Maduro inviting Trump to, to talk. A lot of times, a lot of anti-imperialist leaders are, are forced to do this to show that they've taken the correct line of action in trying to normalize relations. And some people in the Western left, especially ultras, will say, look at them. They're already kowtowing to the, to the Western imperialists. They're, mm-hmm. they're reformists. They're, you know, they're not really radicals because they're trying to have a conversation with the U.S., but that's not the way diplomacy works. In international diplomacy, you have to have dialogue. You have to show the world that you've done all you can to try to negotiate and talk calmly with your enemy. But once you reach a certain line, then obviously you have to take a certain course of action. But I think it's a good lesson to learn, especially for a lot of younger leftists who maybe are more into the ultra scene, where you have to understand it from the point of view of oppressed people in the global south who already have an onslaught of media attacks against them, they have to take the sort of action in seeking dialogue first so they can show the world, look, we've tried to have peaceful dialogue. We've tried to do everything we can. Now we're going to take action. Um, and so I think that's a good lesson here is to, for a lot of younger leftists is to understand that certain actions have to be taken by, by the anti-imperialist left. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fantastic point. Just like how socialist countries have to you know, build up state power and resist imperialism, like they're still within the planet Earth where they have to follow lines of diplomacy. You know, it's a bit of both. Like, yeah, you can harden up your borders like the DPRK, but at the same time, like you still are on the planet and you still have to relate to other people and you still have to communicate to the outside world, which requires diplomacy. Yeah, and then even if you you just like cut yourself off like the DPRK does, then you're just leaving the door open for Western media to say whatever they want. And you can't even come back with any kind of retort. Like, actually, no, we're just kind of living our lives here, just going to work like everybody else. But we don't actually have like, uh, we don't actually believe in unicorns or think that our, our dear leader plays at 18 every time they go golfing or some shit. Like, yeah, (laughs) like he does pee, he does poop. (laughs) I mean, Kim's looking fucking great, dude. I saw those pictures this week and he is looking fit. It's nice to Dude, see. Slim Kim can totally get it. <laughs> like, he was cute and cuddly before, but he could totally get it now. Yeah, now he's looking like a Chad, dude. All right, let's go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> U.S. aggression becomes the pretext for depriving political opponents of civil liberties. 
we wanted to make sure that the United States was aware a direct military intervention in Nicaragua would be no weekend affair, that it would be no picnic, that they would, if they came here, they would stay here, and, and if, if Americans die, then that is a heavy political uh, price to pay back home, because Americans have been somehow uh, educated into believing that the lives of other peoples really don't matter all that much. They don't say it that explicitly, but they really react if it's an American. It could be 100,000 Nicaraguans, and who cares? But if it's an American, so and that's why that, this is the diabolical nature of the thing, using people to wage a war with little political cost for the adventurer. So you were going to raise the cost? And so, but if they came here, we had to develop. We had to give the arms to the people. I love how this Nicaraguan foreign minister seems to know more about American culture and the American mindset than even Americans do, who are so steeped in the ideology that they don't see it for themselves. Like, he nailed it. Like, he got it exactly. Like, Americans do not care whatsoever if hundreds of thousands of people in some other country, especially if they're brown-skinned, if they die, Americans do not give a fuck. Like, Americans still do not give a fuck about the million Iraqis who died since 9-11, but they are still so heartbroken about the 2,000 or so people that died on 9-11. Like, it's just, yeah, he nailed it. Yeah, he's, uh, his points are really good. And even to this day, the Nicaraguan revolution is organized block by block. Every, when I was in Nicaragua recently, I noticed that the Sandinistas have party headquarters in every neighborhood that teach people self-defense, teach people arming and training. And even to this day, they're very well organized in case of any potential coup attempts. And in 2018, during the attempted coup, the Sandinista groups were out and ready to mobilize and defend the revolution in the streets. But again, as I mentioned, I think last time, Ortega held them back temporarily because he knew that the ensuing bloodbath and the victory would be portrayed in mainstream media as a, as a genocide and all these other things. So they're armed and ready even to this day in Nicaragua. And I think it's an important lesson as well that I think, unfortunately, in, in Bolivia in 2019 with the coup against Evo, uh, there wasn't the same sort of structure organization to arm the people against any invaders or coup plotters. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like a double-edged sword, too, where it's like, oh, you stand up to a coup attempt, and it's like, oh, you're genociders. But then if you don't, it's like, oh, look, see, communism is weak and ineffectual. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> right. In Washington, Congress is belatedly embarrassed and angered by revelations of the secret mining of harbors. But it still evades the tougher decision, whether to halt the irregular war. All of us here are political animals, and we cast our votes uh, with an eye on what the repercussions will be in the next election. If we think that the president's uh, position is strong and that the American people are going to give some credence to them. We want to hedge our bets uh, a good deal. It's a little harsh to say that's a gutless way to do things. It's the politically expedient way that you do when you're acting in a, in a political milieu, as, as all of us are. 
Events in Nicaragua. Once again, Congress compromises. No more military aid, no more involvement by the CIA. But they vote $27 million in so-called humanitarian aid. And that's enough to keep the proxy army alive. There's no doubt Congress could have stopped most of the aid to the Contras if it really wanted to. Now, the administration argued that uh, since we didn't think the forces that we were supporting had the capacity to overwhelm the government of Nicaragua, it wasn't violating the law. But that's a kind of nicety of argument that no rational human being could have accepted. And one of the lessons of it was that if the president could get away with violating the law that was on the books, it must mean that the presidency had a great deal of authority to ignore the uh, law itself. Harris thought, can you imagine that? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, like, I love that wording where it's like, oh, yeah, like if the president doesn't have the power. And it's like, then we can look at Bush and Cheney and like them working on the uh, unitary executive theory where basically like nothing is illegal as long as the president does it. And since the president is the leader of the executive branch, he has complete control over all the other branches and he can do anything unilaterally without cause or repercussion. Which is really just a codifying of what was already happening. You know what I mean? Oh, like that's what, what would have been going on all the time anyway, but that's just like slapping everybody in the face with it and saying, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Like, yeah, that gets to a major point that I think a lot of people don't get. And I try to bring up every chance I get, which is that everybody can hem and haul about whatever things that they want to do politically, whatever measures would be good for people, whatever measures would be bad for a country, whatever. None of it matters if the people are not unified and willing to take action. I mean, what do they say? Political power goes out of the barrel of a gun. It's like, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, you could sit here all day and talk about forgiving student loans, universal health care, stopping wars, the legality or illegality of a war, whether it's official because it's declared by Congress or whether it's some clandestine action done through the CIA and front groups or whatever. None of it matters. None of it matters unless we're going to stand up and stop it. Like, it's just going to keep happening. But uh, did you have anything, Ramiro? Sorry. Yeah, that's a great point. And it just shows the fact that in the U.S., people always, even in Western media, they, they describe the U.S. as a democracy, but we know it's a republic. And in Plato's Republic, he explicitly outlines the hierarchy that exists in a republic that certain people, like people in Congress or people who are quote-unquote elected officials, have more power over the country. And in Nicaragua, it's a direct democracy. So that's interesting that you have a country that calls itself a democracy and really isn't a democracy is a capitalist republic, a plutocracy, a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, calling a socialist democracy like Nicaragua a dictatorship. So it's just a co complete inversion of, of the media spin. Fuck, it just makes me think of this tweet I saw earlier today uh, quoting uh, Caitlin Johnstone's latest article where it's like, you're anti-American. No, I'm anti-war, anti-militarism, anti-empire, anti-ecocide, anti-oligarchy, anti-capitalism, and anti-nuclear brinkmanship. It just so happens that the U.S. is at the center of a global spanning power structure that is the worst offender of all these forms. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, man, I literally woke up this morning thinking of how bad I wish she would actually come on our podcast. And, like, it's a shame she does not do appearances, so she won't, unfortunately. But, like... Everything she writes is just so dead on and so just nails it every time. It's so great. Yeah. All right, get back to the video here. 1985. Armed with a powerful mandate, his landslide re-election victory, the president raises the political stakes on Nicaragua. He does not intend to quit. 
Alfonso Adolfo and Arturo, would you kind of come up here and stand by my side? I want to tell you something. We're in this together. You are the future of Central America. Today I give you my solemn pledge. I will not rest until freedom is given a fighting chance in Nicaragua. And by freedom, he means imperialism, of course. <laughs> no, absolutely. I never want to hear anybody say Viva Reagan again. Viva Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Freedom, a.k.a. a U.S.-backed dictator. A yeah, fascist right. U.S.-backed dictator. The three contra-political leaders recruited and supported by the CIA become their army's salesmen. Opinion polls show a majority of the American public has never supported the war. But now the president mounts a campaign to change their minds. They are our brothers, these freedom fighters, and we owe them our help. You know the truth about them. You know who they're fighting and why. They are the moral equal of our founding fathers and the brave men and women of the French resistance. We cannot turn away from them. It's funny because literally none of that was true. Like literally every single thing he just said was the exact polar opposite of the truth. Right. He, he just compared the fascist right wing Contras to the opposition in France during the French Revolution. Like <laughs> to the founding fathers. He's, he's saying like, oh, Americans know the truth. Americans know why this is being fought. Really? Do they? Do they have any clue whatsoever? Like, no, dude, you're manufacturing consent. Like, shut the fuck up. I'm sorry, Ramiro, did you have something? Oh, no, no, I just wanted to say as well that it's crazy because the irony as well is that the Sandinista revolution, if anything, the Sandinistas are like the actual founding fathers of Nicaragua because Nicaragua had been a colony, a U.S. neo-colony for like six decades prior to that. Yeah. And even before that was colonized by the Spanish. And so it's just the irony. It's like it's a complete inversion. Everything the U.S. says about an anti-imperialist leader just flip it and it's true otherwise yeah actually i will say that the contras are absolutely like the founding fathers they represent a minority of the population and their end goal was to uphold bourgeois ideals yeah you're not wrong that's true (laughs) yeah no evil is inevitable unless we make it so we cannot have the United States walk away from one of the greatest moral challenges in post-war history. We will fight on. We'll win this struggle for peace. Thank you for inviting me. Viva Nicaragua Libra. Thank you and God bless you. The president's zeal fuels a new secret operation. Run from inside the White House, armed shipments to the Contras are arranged in defiance of Congress and paid for with money from private sources, foreign governments, and profits skimmed from the Iranian arms sale. That worked. Yeah, you know how like a little bit ago they just said that they weren't going to continue supporting the Contras? Oh yeah. And it's like, oh, we'll just give them some humanitarian <laughs> aid. And then this happens, and then they continue supporting the Contras. It's funny. No, I think this is where he finally, they finally get to talking about the Iran-Contra affair proper and exactly how that actually works in practice. CIA veterans of Vietnam and the Bay of Pigs are recruited to handle the traffic. Then one of their planes is shot down over Nicaragua. Oops. My name is Gene Hansen. And the operation begins to unravel. So again, just like the Bay of Pigs. Can you tell us how you came to be here? 
the sky. The private management of the war will become a public controversy, but not the nature of the war itself. Nicaragua is slowly bleeding. Washington's strategy, low-intensity warfare, means a war aimed mainly at civilians. Misery, it is thought, will lead to political upheaval. Scores of health clinics and schools are destroyed. Refugees crowd into Managua, into deepening scarcity and poverty. Freedom, baby. So glad Reagan brought them freedom. <laughs> and riding on a truck down a rural road is as dangerous as wearing an army uniform. God warned me. I was afraid, but I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just give thanks to God that my son is still alive. This is my son. And my husband is here too. I don't know. They tell me he'll only lose his foot. It is a longer-term problem that uh, the United States uh, has taken on, and we have to be patient enough to see it through. Again, this is the uh, general, I think his name was General Nutting. I, I watched the documentary again today. It was like some terrible, awful name like that. But like, yeah, this is that uh, big jaw general again. I'm just saying she should be thankful to the Sandinistas, not God. Because one, it's the Sandinistas that's protecting the Nicaraguan people. And two, unlike God, the Sandinistas are real. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, General, we are financing at, at, at least a, a modest level a proxy war against the Nicaraguan government. Uh, that's what I read in the newspapers. I do not. Uh, <laughs> you didn't know that when you were in the government? <laughs> I do not uh, find that uh, illogical or morally repugnant. I'm not talking about it morally a, repugnant. I'm form. talking about what is that supposed to accomplish if you, if you have to wait for all of these other developments in order for the Nicaraguan people to see that they don't want the Sandinista it government. Reduces, it reduces the freedom of action of the Sandinista government. It engages their armed forces. Uh, it is a way to alert the Nicaraguan populace and uh, and and develop a degree of popular support that ultimately will uh, result in an uprising and an overthrow of the government. Uh, it is a way to speed along the process. It does pose problems and put pressures on the Sandinista government that can be helpful in reducing the length of time required for this. What I'm really talking about is an evolutionary solution of the problem you're talking about that five place. or ten years uh, perhaps all right so there's a lot there so again that was big jaw general guy talking again doing his uh kind of dance where he you know does a lot of diplomatic language to describe the situation but in essence he's saying he's admitting that he knows that the government is funding the contras through their back channels through the iran contra affair and again he's doing that same shit that the other contra guy who's from Nicaragua, said where he's like denying any knowledge other than what he reads in the newspapers, even though he's directly involved and knows exactly what's going on, of course. And even when called out, then he just doubles down and said, well, yeah, I mean, it's good because it's going to hamper the Sandinista government. It's going to make everything harder for them. And even if it takes five or 10 years, it's going to eventually lead to the changing of the tide of the sentiment of the people and a collapse of the Sandinista government. And even if millions of people suffer in the meantime, that's all worth it because we have to collapse this government because, you know, freedom and communism bad or whatever. But uh, Ramiro, I'd love to hear your take on that. It definitely shows the 
transition from the U.S. wanting to focus both on overthrowing an anti-imperialist socialist government and installing a new right-wing Washington obedient leader over to just simply creating chaos and destruction and earning profits, maintaining markets through destruction, accumulation through destruction. And it's a very deadly and sinister aspect of U.S. imperialism that is present today. A, a great example is Libya, where the U.S. overthrew Gaddafi. They launched the invasion with NATO. They sought to take him out. They used the same tactics of media propaganda, pro-democracy protests, the usual nonsense. But instead of focusing just as hard on placing somebody who is pro-Washington or pro West and pro Wall Street, they sort of left the country in ruins and chaos, competing factions, competing tribes, vying for power, destruction. And it actually comes out cheaper for the imperialists because now they no longer have to suffer the bad PR of backing someone like Pinochet in Chile again, because, right, the coup in Chile, which the anniversary recently passed, mm-hmm. September 11, 1973. The U.S. got rid of Allende and installed Augusto Pinochet, right-wing fascist dictator. Turns out Pinochet wasn't getting too good press and branding. He was not so well-liked by the people around the world. And well, except for Margaret Thatcher. She loved him. Oh, yeah, except for, except for her, yeah. But she, you know... Also the Dalai Lama. Also the Dalai Lama, <laughs> yeah. Also the Dalai Lama. And so it's, it, it actually makes it harder... For it's better for the U.S. imperialists to oppose somebody and focus on that initial period of getting rid of somebody than defending somebody. Because th- once you're defending somebody, you know, it's so much easier to find flaws in a government or ruler. And that's kind of why I think the U.S. is no longer about propping up a, a right-wing dictator as it, they used to be in the past. Now it's just about creating havoc and destruction with low-intensity warfare with supporting multiple sides of a war and profiting from that war. And I think this is exactly part of that turning point where no longer are they focused on backing somebody publicly like a Pinochet or a Batista who's so hateable and instead just supporting chaos and destruction because that chaos and destruction will be blamed on socialism and any other person who tries to defend their country from from Wall Street and Washington. So I think... It just shows the psychology and behind the way these people think. And it just shows you also the profit motive in capitalism that even, you know, regime change operations cost something. They probably have a budget for it. They probably have a folder that's like, okay, Nicaragua in 1985, 1986, and they have a budget allocated for it. They have a goal and it's cheaper to just run a country down, destroy it and let them figure out who's going to take over as opposed to focusing on defending some openly right-wing fascist person there and trying to create good PR for them. So I think it's a, definitely a turning point in the way the U.S. has shifted in its regime change operations. No, I mean, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, chaos is easy and cheap. Uh, would you have word? Yeah, no, I was going to mention, like, it goes back to, like, what we were saying on previous episodes where, like, the U.S. doesn't have to win the war to win overall. Destabilization is a major win for them because it lets them point and go, see, this shit doesn't work because look what's happening over here. Yeah. 
And quickly, like, I wanted to mention, like, how he's saying, like, oh, I don't view it morally repugnant. It's like, you don't view it morally repugnant that you're trying to sway fucking populist opinion in favor of something that will hurt the populace. Like, you're trying to get them to vote against themselves. How is that not morally repugnant? And doing it by committing atrocity after atrocity. Exactly. I mean, another thing that came into my mind when I was doing the editing for the last two episodes was that I'm actually surprised it's even called the Libyan method instead of the Nicaraguan method. Maybe it's just catchier to call it the Libyan method because it is exactly the same dynamic there. You just make unreasonable demands. The country acquiesces to those demands anyway. And then you just go through with the aggression that you were going to do regardless. And I mean, that's, again, why Kim has learned the lesson from Gaddafi, which is don't give up your nukes because that's the only thing you have going for you. Well, yeah, like... Like I've mentioned before, like you have like fucking sitting senators on the floor of the fucking Capitol building on live TV saying, oh, yeah, we want to use the Libya model against North Korea. Yeah. Like it's so transparent, this imperialism that is here in the U.S. Ward is transparent if you're paying attention, if you're actually like keeping up on this stuff. If you're not, if you're just watching CNN or Fox, like you're going to have no idea about it, but. Man, I'll, get true. Back, I'll get back to the video. Fucking lives. <laughs> we need to have that kind of patience. By 1986, more than 20,000 Nicaraguans on both sides have died. Another 20,000 have been wounded. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. The majority of the American people still oppose funding the Contra War five years after its beginning. But congressional Democrats, driven by a mad political logic, fear that if they end the war, they will be accused of losing Nicaragua, as they were once accused of losing China and Vietnam. I don't believe there's a majority in the Congress or the country that counsels passivity, resignation, defeatism in the face of this challenge to freedom and security in our own hemisphere. In August 1986, Ronald Reagan wins what for Washington is really a political war. Congress votes $100 million for the Contras. But the victory will be short-lived. What began as a proxy war fought in a foreign land will come home as an epic scandal in American politics. The war goes on. Our proxy army is in the field and fighting. Honduras is armed. The Sandinistas are stronger than ever, and America's own fighting forces hover alongside. Some things are not different this time. Nicaragua appears, like Vietnam, to be a war without an ending. Once again, innocent bystanders have been pulled into our struggle. Once again, the U.S. government did not tell the truth about its intentions, nor did it confront the real costs. And once again, an American cause has become someone else's tragedy. Most people have these fantasies, enemies, or things in their head. So they are not fighting Sandinista, they are fighting themselves. They are fighting their own dreams, their own fantasies. And they get caught in this. And they end up believing it. So it's a kind of a self-deception, you know. Because when you go and see the enemy, you find there are these poor ignorant peasants, or these poor uh, women, children, and so on, you know, who their only problem is that they are poor and ignorant, you know, and, and neglected. 
So uh, I just one day wake up and said, this is crazy. No, this is insanity. Because we are inventing reality in our heads. And then we put it on people. Uh, and then we say they are communists. We need to label them to kill them. And so that's obviously the guy who was a Contra and then became a Sandinista at some point later on. So it's good to at least hear that perspective of it, because we heard some clips from him before in the previous episode talking about how, you know, for our listeners, he was the same guy who talked about how the CIA instructed them specifically to not say that they had any ties to them, to say that they didn't know who the CIA people were, that they weren't taking orders from any Western intelligence agencies or anything like that. So um, it's at least good to hear his perspective. But again, it's just still ironic to hear, even after as big of a quote unquote scandal this was for all the politicians involved. And how it was very well known that they were just barely towing the line of legality and still understood among everyone that they were, you know, operating to overthrow this government, a legitimately elected government. Then Congress still ends up awarding them $100 million to fund the Contras anyway. So um, I think we have like just a, two more minutes left of this video. But if you have anything, Romero, before I get back to it, go ahead. Yeah, there's um, what's interesting about that is that there are many people like that even today in Nicaragua as well, who were former Contras and now support the Sandinista revolution. I spoke to a woman named Elida Montes. Her interview, I've been taking a bit releasing it because it's kind of a, a lot of translation, but I'm hoping to have it out within the next few weeks where she went head to head. She was actually a Contra commander and she killed a lot of Sandinistas. It was an interesting experience because I, I went to this one meeting where it was this one guy who I was chilling with most of the time who was a Sandinista fighter for many years in that region and was toe-to-toe with the, with the Contras. And then I also met with the Contra woman. Her name was Elida. And both of them were in the same battle. It was called La Batalla de Pantasma, the city called Pantasma. And she killed, like, a bunch of his comrades. And he killed some of her comrades. And now they're, like, great friends. Now they're, like, homies. They chill. Wow. We were, like, having lunch at this event in, in Managua where we were chilling with them. And... You know, they were just sharing stories about how, like, wow, like all the people we lost and how they're saying how I was being deceived and I was being fed false information that it was these horrible communists. And, and basically, one, one other thing that's important to mention as well is that not only were the Contras trafficking drugs, they were also being forced drugs. Keep in mind that this is after the Vietnam War. A lot of Vietnam vets from the U.S. report being forced to take drugs, heroin, and, and all these other things in battle to dehumanize their enemy, to make them trip out, literally, to make the enemy seem like they're a monster or some diabolical being. And that was the case with a lot of Contras, too. A lot of Contras were drugged up in battle, and that's why they would do all these crazy shit, like cut off people's heads and, and kill babies, because they were literally, like, tripping balls. They were high on crack, they were high on heroin that some of the Contra commanders were, were trafficking as well. So we're talking about really poor, illiterate people who are being paid and are also being drugged to kill their own people. And it's, it's crazy. It sounds insane to us, but at the same time, during those conditions, during hardships, PTSD, trauma, people do crazy stuff. And, and that's what the, this Contra lady was telling me, that it wasn't just money and, and you know, they weren't just trafficking drugs. They were being forced drugs and once the spell wore off once they the contras were gone and all this stuff then so many people realized what what the situation was you know oh unbelievable dude yeah 
All right, well, let's just finish this up, and then we'll uh, get to talking about uh, your documentary. Let me know. Cool. In this war, the people who will be killed live in cooperatives like Miraflores. Coming here, one discovers the nature of the Contra War and comes face to face with its realities. Silvio was a real special guy. He was, he was a peasant. He was killed about 50 feet away from here. Paul Rice is an American agronomist who works for the Nicaraguan government, helping the peasant farmers here. When I walked over and saw the trench where he died, I just wanted to cry. He was here the day that this cooperative was attacked, and he grabbed a gun to defend it, just like any of the other members of the cooperative. Next day, when we came up to evacuate the dead and the wounded, we found that Silvio had been castrated and that his stomach had been sliced open with a bayonet. This is our war. It is fought in places like this. But one thing is different this time. In our war on Nicaragua, there are no American casualties. Nicaraguans have done all the dying. Go ahead, boy. I just want to reiterate like how they mentioned before that this is low intensity warfare. Yeah. And the reality of low intensity warfare is that Americans don't die. But the tragedies wreaked upon the Nicaraguan people. Yeah, I don't know how you could possibly hear about something like somebody being castrated and disemboweled alive and call that low intensity. Like That seems pretty fucking high intensity to me. And it just seems very yeah. fitting that, Romero, you mentioned people high out of their gourd on drugs and being able to commit these like awful acts because of it. You know, not even knowing that I was about to play that clip. And then that comes up and it's just like, it's so fitting. And it's just like, it's so fucking horrific. And it's like... I've heard people in my life, like people who are apolitical, who just still have some kind of general feeling that their government is an evil empire. And they've said things like, it was somebody I know particularly who's, who's kind of religious, actually. And he said, like, when the end of days comes and, you know, all the crimes of all the people are exposed, you're not going to believe the things that your government has done to its own people and to other people. And he was right on the money. And without any research really into any of this kind of stuff, he was still right on the money. And it's very true. And it's just like, not only is that so true, but also you still can find out some of these atrocities. Like this is, again, publicly available knowledge that anyone can find just on YouTube. But it's like, it's so horrific, man. Um, uh, we've got like 40 seconds left. And then, uh, and then, Ramiro, I'll let you go off because I'm sure you can say a lot about this. Cool. In recent weeks, the Contras have stepped up their military operations in Nicaragua. The administration is hoping for some military success to help persuade a skeptical Congress to vote for $105 million of additional aid by this fall. I'm Judy Woodruff. Please join me again for Frontline. Good night. All right, so that's the end of the video. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Ramiro, if you have any comments on that as well. Definitely. The 
interesting thing is all that stuff is still going on today as we speak. There's a New York Times article that just came out a few days ago. It says, quote, everyone is on the list. Fear grips Nicaragua as it veers to dictatorship. So the same playbook, same strategy is being used today. The only reason Nicaragua today is much different from what we heard in the documentary. Nicaragua is the safest country in Central America because of socialism. Nicaragua is the most gender equal country in Central America, one of the top in Latin America because of socialism. It's also one of the most eco-friendly in terms of its environmental output. Very little damage to the environment. It's a very green country. Everywhere you go is a symbiosis between nature and society. Food sovereignty, people are eating healthy, clean food produced locally. Afro-Indigenous peoples have rights to their land. Students go to school for free. There's universal basic health care that everyone is able to access. So it's much different today in Nicaragua than what it was in the 80s. And that's thanks to the Sandinista government for building that stability. But unfortunately, the threat of destabilization returning to those days that we heard in the documentary is very real. We know with the case of Libya that years and year decades of progress can be rolled back in a matter of weeks. And that's what the U.S. imperialists are trying to do today with uh, stirring up fear campaign against the Sandinistas. The elections are coming up in November, November 7th. And already they're coming out with all these stories designed to stir protests, designed to stir sanctions. And it's very well possible that Nicaragua could return to that if the right wing returns, if the Contras return, if the U.S. imperialists have their way. But if the anti-imperialist left around the world shows its solidarity and support with the Sandinista revolution, then it's possible to avoid that. And that solidarity is key. And unfortunately, for a lot of people in the West, they, they don't even know Nicaragua as a country, you know? So there's so much work that needs to be done in terms of building solidarity. Um, but it just shows you that Nicaragua, in one hand, it's sad because it's also like how you pointed out earlier, the model that was used in Libya was very much used in, in Nicaragua. And Nicaragua has always been somewhat of a testing ground for imperialism, going back even to the 1800s with William Walker. But it's also a source of inspiration. It's also a source of inspiration to see what is possible with food sovereignty, with women's liberation in such a poor, underdeveloped country. So the point is that the struggle continues. And to this day, it's so important for people all over the world to learn about what's going on in Nicaragua. And that's what I hope to do with my documentary, Nicaragua Against Empire. Yeah, and that's actually what, now that we finished the video, finally, after three episodes of uh, just watching that video, I want to talk just about your documentary. I know we only have you for another 15, 20 minutes, but I took a few notes on it. And, you know, this is actually pretty relevant because like you say, even when you make major reforms and major developments with building a socialist project, you can lose all of it so easily and so quickly um, to imperialism because that is a huge aggressive force that will absolutely do everything it possibly can to not even just like overturn your country if it can't do that, but to just cause utter chaos and then point to your country and your socialist project as a failure. So I wanted to, I mean, also kind of relate that to one of our most recent episodes with uh, Brett from Rev Left talking about democratic socialism. And we spent a good amount of time talking about how capitalism itself cannot be reformed into anything that works for the working class people. And just to really hammer that point home, 
even socialism, even socialism when it takes place in like an overthrow of the far right dictatorship can still fall backwards into reaction. So how much of a chance do you think reformation of capitalism can possibly stand as far as being able to improve the material conditions of the people? But watching your documentary, I took a few notes. I didn't take a lot because I want to hear you talk about it and hear what points you want to get across to everybody. But what I did write down was that there was obviously protests in 2018. That was a big focus of your documentary. And it was portrayed as a peaceful demonstration against a totalitarian government, the Sandinista government. But in reality, it was an attempted right-wing coup enabled by the U.S. to overthrow the FSLN government and Daniel Ortega. But it didn't work because the vast majority of the citizens are happy with the Sandinista government and its reforms. And the coup attempt failed because of that. Um, and again, this is going to be a very familiar story for our listeners, like almost identical to the recent U.S. attempts at regime chains in Cuba. But um, I just wanted to hear you talk about any major points that you would like to relate to the coup attempt in 2018 and how this relates to what we've been talking about and just expound more on that if you could. I think one thing in 2018, the coup attempt that differentiated from previous coup attempts and the Contra War is digital and social media, the role that it played. And it shows that just as capitalism and the free market evolves to fuck over people all over the world, so does this tactics. And social media has increasingly been one of those tactics. Everyone is on social media. And what was found out through the 2018 coup, the aftermath, was that a lot of fake bot accounts were created in the years leading up to the coup attempt in 2018 that started off as regular accounts posting stuff like shit Nicaraguan say or sports in Nicaragua or celebrity gossip in Nicaragua, travel in Nicaragua. And for years, these were kind of sleeper cell accounts that were just posting non-political content, mm. building up a following of hundreds of thousands of people. And in unison overnight during the protests in April 2018, in all perfect sync synchronization, they all began promoting get Ortega out, you know, kick him out down the dictatorship, no more Sandinistas, SOS Nicaragua. And it just goes to show you that media and social media, although it is a technology and a tool that should be harnessed by the left, it's also a weapon. It's also being used to not only distract people, to keep people dumbed down, to keep people not from learning about the world, from learning about issues affecting people, but just in an endless feedback loop of nonsense just being fed to us. I just but it's to, also, um, sorry, I just want to interject mm -hmm. something really quick, just to reiterate your point. Um, one of the statistics I took from your documentary was that in 2017, Nicaragua was the country that made the most gains of overall happiness, according to the World Happiness Index. One of the metrics being faith and confidence in their own government. And then in 2018, it was one of the most violent countries in the world because of these efforts of the U.S. intelligence agencies and the private business and media encouragement of those protests. Uh, but continue. Sorry. That's a great uh, point. And wait, sorry. They, I, they, well, I'm sorry. What, what was it? Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say real quick, like I, I've mentioned this on previous episodes and shit, but like this is textbook Operation Earnest Voice by the United States, where they create these sock puppet accounts that garner followings and push political messages that support U.S. imperialism. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead again, Ramiro. 100%. And that's something that Nicaragua, just talking to people, are so, people are aware, right? They know that it's not the wealthiest country in the world. It's not, there's no skyscrapers. There's no luxury 
Gucci stores or Lamborghini stores. It's a very humble working class country, but people have what they need. People have clean food, good housing, healthcare. And I think most of all that I think is really impressive is that when you go to Nicaragua, and I compel you all to go and, and for anybody who's interested in, in going there in a delegation that I went to, let me know and I can get you in touch with them, is that when you go there, you don't see young people on their smartphones the way that you do in the U.S. Like young people are still outside hanging out. They're swimming in the lake. They're fishing. They're playing soccer. You know, they're, they're doing a, a socialist protest. They're planning a dance routine for the next socialist on DV7. They're not hunched over their, their smartphone, you know, in a group. Like I was just in a mall the other day here in, in, in L.A., and like I saw a group of teenagers hanging out at the mall, but they weren't even talking to each other. Yeah, they weren't even talking to each other. They were all hunched over their phones in a group. And it's just sad because imperialism is not just economic, political, it's also spiritual, it's also psychological. And one of the techniques and strategies of imperialism in Nicaragua has been using social media to sell people a fake lifestyle. There are the right-wing petty bourgeois private school kids in Nicaragua are convinced that if they throw overthrow their government, if they kill Daniel Ortega, if they implement the free market, that they too can live like the rich kids in Miami, that they too can live, have Lamborghinis and have boats and have the $500 iPhones and live this illusion, this dreamland that Hollywood and mainstream media create with their media apparatus. So that's part of the media technique as well. It's like, it's not just attacking Daniela and attacking the Sandinistas. It's also creating an illusion, a dream world. Right. And it's interesting, even like, you know, this is kind of off topic, but Hollywood, like the Hollywood as a, a factory of dreams and media has been used in Latin America and the Caribbean and all over the world to create this fake illusion, this fake dreamland that people can have all these beautiful things if they embrace the free market, if they embrace neoliberalism. And that's part of the other more intense aspect of imperialist regime change that is not often talked about, because especially in the global South, in a socialist anti-imperialist country, for example, people who are younger, who don't remember what neoliberalism is like or capitalism, they're going to see that. They're going to see those TikTok videos. They're going to see those YouTube videos of the yachts and the champagne. And they're going to think that you can have that if you embrace the free market and, and the U.S. and the U.S. imperialist media selling them this fake dream, this illusion. So that's another aspect of the imperialist war regime change efforts that is now under threat in Nicaragua. And that's why it's important for people, the left in the U.S., to have dialogue with the left all over the world, especially the left in anti-imperialist countries to reaffirm the youth, to tell the youth like, yo, it's not cracked up. This capitalism free market stuff, it's not what you think it is. It, it yeah. sucks, actually. And so that's important to point out because the same thing happens in Venezuela. The same thing, that's what we see happening in Cuba, you know, with the, all these hip-hop artists, uh, the San Isidro so-called movement backed by the U.S. selling the stream of Miami and, you know, you can be an entrepreneur and this and that. And and once they get to the U.S., they're they're washing dishes They're You know, that that I think is the biggest threat now is like the next level of warfare is like dreams and social media and illusions. And and, and that's a whole nother 
4D chess, you know? No, it's like a reverse cultural revolution. Like, it's... Oh, of course. Uh, would you have Ward? Yeah, no, I like, I've mentioned it before, but, like, that's, like, one of my favorite things um, when watching 90 Day Fiance is, like, these people from uh, different countries finally being like, oh, I can go to the United States? And then they get here, and they're like, I want to go back. Yeah, this shit like, sucks. This shit sucks. Like, this is not what I thought it would be. It's not what it's all made out to be. I want to go the fuck back. But my favorite thing that Ramiro just said was that, like, so you're telling me in Nicaragua that kids these days are touching grass? <laughs> they are touching grass, and not even just grass that makes you feel good, but natural, regular grass and people are out having a good time living life and that's why the world happiness index consistently has nicaragua ranked as one of the happiest countries and that's it's just ironic because all these articles i remember when it came out too in 2017 and i remember all these articles like wage levels are are at a historic low in nicaragua how can they be so happy and it's just like people in the west just cannot understand how you can be happy with just the basics that you need in life, you know, and it goes back to that understanding of socialism is like from each according to the ability to each according to their need. And that's really how Nicaragua's economy is set up. It's like, yeah, you're not going to get a Lambo. You're not going to get a skyscraper. You're not going to get Gucci belts, but you're going to get food. You're going to get your plate of tortillas and beans and rice and plantain. You're going to have a job. You're going to go to school for free. And you're not going to be able to access all these fancy things, but you don't need them. You know, why, why would you want to hunch over your $500 iPhone where you could go swim in the lake with your friends, you know? So it's a whole different, like, worldview that I think people in the West don't understand. And that's, I think it's important for there to be cooperation and travel between young people in the U.S. leftists and young leftists in Nicaragua. So you can see the reality. Yeah, I know me, myself personally, I would be so much happier if I had access to plantains because where I fucking live now, I don't have any fucking plantains and I'm sad as shit. (laughs) Rudolph, you told me that people in the West who are steeped in neoliberal ideology cannot imagine any kind of life outside of expressing their identity through consumerism, that they can't imagine that anyone could be happy expressing their identity any other way than what they consume and what they buy. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. And uh, it's just interesting because so much of the left aesthetic in the first world in the U.S., I feel like it's also like a brand, right? I've noticed when I was living in New York, I'm from New York, a lot of people who consider themselves anarchists or leftists or socialists, it was kind of like a sports team. It was kind of like an aesthetic. It was, are you Yankees or Mets? Are you, you know, ML or anarchists? Are you this or that? And in Nicaragua and in anti-imperialist socialist countries, it's not so much a trendy thing or a lifestyle thing. It's like a, it's life or death, you know? And for people in Nicaragua, the election actually means something like, you know how in the U S we hear all this bullshit, like what's at stake in this election, you know, and, and all this nonsense. And it's like in a country like Nicaragua where there's socialist democracy, like elections have a huge fucking deal on the people they have a huge impact. It means the difference between going to school for free or losing your full tuition. It means a difference between losing your monthly stipend or food or, or land. You know, that's a big part of it, too, because remember, there was a huge land redistribution program that happened after the Sandinista Revolution. Millions and millions of acres were redistributed to peasants and working class people. 
And the right wing has promised that if we win the election, we're taking back our land. Yeah. So you're talking about millions of families, farming families who are like, if, they, if the Sandinistas lose this election or if they're forcibly overthrown, then you're talking about millions of displaced people who are going to be joining those migrant caravans. And that's going to end up coming to the U.S. doorstep. You know, that's going to end up impacting the U.S. as well. So that's, that's the thing to keep in mind, is too. It's like it's all interconnected, right? Because the people we see coming on the caravans are not coming from Nicaragua. They're coming from Honduras, right? They're coming from El Salvador. They're coming from Guatemala, from Mexico. All countries that are run by the free market, by capitalism. And Nicaragua is not the case. There's almost nobody on the caravans from Nicaragua. But rest assured, if the U.S. attempts to implement regime change, if it attempts to overthrow the Sandinista government, millions of people will leave because their lands are going to be given back to the rich. Their education is going to be cut. Their public programs are going to be cut. And where are they going to go to? They're going to go to the U.S. And that cycle continues on and on. You know, so it's, it's the same thing. Like in Honduras, where my family is from, after the 2009 coup that got rid of Manuel Zelaya, a socialist who was president, moving to the left, trading with Venezuela, joining Alba, trading with Cuba. He was overthrown. And immediately since then, you have millions of Hondurans who have migrated to the U.S. through the caravans. So we can expect to see something similar if Washington tries to carry out a coup against Nicaragua. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of, um, I know you only have a few minutes left, but uh, that actually ties in very well with like the last bit of notes that I took on your documentary. And I wrote down that what sparked the entire upheaval in 2018 was that there were social security negotiations that were pushed by the IMF. Um, what's up, Sterling? <laughs> it was up. Way to jump in at the last second. We're actually wrapping it up. Okay. Uh, but uh, just hold on a second. So there were social security negotiations that were pushed by the IMF, pushing for neoliberal reforms. And because, like you say, the people in Nicaragua realize what they have and realize what's at stake if they lose that, they were obviously very resistant to those reforms. And private businesses and the media encouraged the protests in favor of these reforms that would benefit businesses. And not only that, but like the Catholic Church also encouraged the rape, torture and murder of left wing supporters. So at the risk of like keeping you here longer than I wanted to, I know, again, we're trying to be respectful of your time. But if you want to just say whatever you want about that and then we can uh, wrap it up from there. Oh, most definitely. So the private sector in Nicaragua has been catered to by the Western imperialists. And it's interesting because going back to I think we were talking about this, the first part of the episode, that there are three main factions in the Sandinista movement. Historically, one faction was the more Maoist aligned ultra left faction called the prolonged people's war faction and it was actually named that after the after china so the prolonged people's war faction basically was promoting this line of you know uh people's war until communism right kill kill shoot the revolution never stops never compromise with the enemy kill everybody who's right wing which i used to feel like that when i was younger and first getting into socialism and when i had that all that energy of under you know revolutionary energy but with time, you come to realize that when you're trying to build, especially a global South nation, when you're trying to lift people out of poverty, when you're trying to feed people, build roads and housing, you're going to have to work with people that you fucking hate, that you don't like. And that includes some national bourgeoisie. And that's the irony about the, some of the ultra-left faction, the ultra-left in general, who 
will call themselves Maoists or will uphold prolonged people's war, but will understand that one of the stars on the flag of the People's Republic of China that Mao Zedong himself even comments on is the national bourgeoisie, the new democracy that you're forced to work with as a communist party, as a socialist movement, to first build a national industry out of war, and then you can begin nationalizing, then you can begin redistributing. But you can't kill your way into socialism. You can't burn down your way into socialism, and you need some level of cooperation. So Daniel Ortega represented the faction of the Sandinistas that was like, look, I know we hate them. I know that they're allied with the West. I know that they only care about profits. But let's build our national industry. Let's work with the national bourgeois, build up the mode and means of production in the country so that we can have wealth to even distribute in the first place. Because, again, we're talking about a war-torn country that was totally devastated in the 80s from the Contra War. Half, you know, buildings blown up, roads blown up. So you need something to get your way out of that. And there were factions, right? So the prolonged people's war faction of the Sandinista front was against that. And interestingly enough, that wing manifested itself into the MRS, which is the Movimiento Renovación Sandinista, which is an ultra-left faction that opposes Daniel Ortega for not being radical enough and not being socialist enough, interestingly enough. But they're backed by the USCIA. So that's, that's an interesting connection, right? Yeah. how the, the State Department will team up with ultras to attack the ML left when it's convenient. I'm shocked. Then you have the other faction that is more liberal, that is more reformist, that is like more Catholic, more religious, like, you know, let's give up the socialism stuff. Let's just be more peaceful. That you can more or less say is more revisionist. Daniel Ortega straddles the line between the two. He maintains that unity. He's like, look, we have to maintain our revolutionary principles. We're socialists. We're anti-imperialists. We stand with DPRK. We stand with Palestine. We stand with Cuba and Venezuela. We're building socialism. Just a few weeks ago, they nationalized the country's largest electrical company. So now electricity is fully nationalized in Nicaragua. And that was a national bourgeois company that they had been working with. They didn't cooperate, so they nationalized it. So there is nationalization taking place in Nicaragua. On the other hand, he also understands that you can't completely scare the crap out of people and you have to maintain business. You have to have small businesses. You have to invest in micro entrepreneurship. You have to invest in local restaurants on a small scale and work with them to maintain a national economy. So Ortega and his brilliance as, as a Marxist, as, as a revolutionary, he understands that you have to maintain unity between these two entities in order to maintain strength against the empire, because the empire will cater to these two wings to attack your movement. So that's some of the discussion that has been going on. And that's why even the national bourgeoisie in, in Nicaragua is very allied to Ortega and to the Sandinistas. They, they defend the Sandinistas because the Sandinistas, instead of being like, oh, you're a capitalist, you're a small, you're a business owner, you're the enemy, we're going to kill you. They say, look, let's give them a better offer. Let's work with them so that, for example, a small business, a restaurant, instead of being like, oh, you're the enemy, you're a capitalist, you're like, okay, how about all of the food that you serve is sourced by the Sandinista collective farms, right? And same with micro-entrepreneurs, like instead of being like, oh, you want to have a business that creates technology or industry, you know, let's use that technology and industry, buy that for the state and use it for the people. So you have a public sector that competes with the private sector, 
but in a friendly way that is aimed toward developing the national industry. And it sounds boring as fuck. To, it's not the sexiest thing. It's not the coolest thing to some of the ultras in the, in the Western left. But it's a necessary thing for people in Nicaragua who are overcoming decades of poverty. And that's really what socialism is about. It's lifting people out of poverty, bringing the means of production to the working class, the working and the peasant class. And that's what we see in Nicaragua today. That's what they're doing. That's what they're building. And I think it just shows you that within the socialist movement, we constantly have to adapt our model to the 21st century, to the new conditions. We can't follow this old 60s, 70s style method of killing your way into revolution and being like, fuck everyone, fuck everything. I know it's cool, it's trendy, but in real life, that's not what it works out. You know, and I think for that reason, the Sandinistas have been able to stay in power because they're able to feed people, house people, clothe people who aren't even political. I mean, it's, it's like any other country, right? Like most people don't think the way we think. Right. Like we're here having this conversation because we're socialists, we're communists, we care about the we genuinely care about the world. We genuinely care about our ideology. But in reality, a lot of people in the world, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, they're not concerned about the day to day politics. They're concerned about feeding their family. They're concerned about paying their bills. They're concerned about going to school, getting a job. And that's fine. That's that's not even to, to look down upon that. But with that understanding of reality, how will we as communists, as leftists, win those people over to us to be like, socialism is even more effective at doing those things than capitalism. And that's what Nicaragua has managed to do, where they've, they've shown, and even in the interviews, you know, in the documentary, you'll hear people, they'll say like, you know, back in under neoliberalism, it would take us like 10 days to get from the Caribbean coast to Managua. Now it takes 10 hours, you know? So socialism being even more productive i mean i i kind of like to compare it to just to kind of wrap up on this point uh it's kind of like like a jealous boyfriend or a, a jealous guy and it's like look at that guy he has a six-pack or like look at this other guy he you know he does this he's good at sports like fuck fuck that guy instead of being a hater instead of defining yourself in opposition to that person be better than that person you know be even more fit be even more healthy be even a better dancer a better cook better boyfriend like and that's the kind of the mindset, the growth mindset that we have to apply to socialism. Yeah, work on yourself, capitalism. Right, 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 exactly. You know, so, so that's the mindset. That's the mindset shift that you see in Nicaragua, that where it's about building and growth and development. It's not just about what we're against, it's, it's what we're for. Absolutely. Sorry, would you have a word? Yeah, no, um... As the sino uh, optimistic tanky that I am, like I love that you made the connection to China and like the economic um, system that they have there, and like exactly like you're saying, it's not just China that's doing this. Like I got to pull up one of my favorite Lenin quotes here: "Is get down to business, all of you. You will have capitalists beside you, including foreign capitalists." concessionaires and leaseholders they'll squeeze profits out of you amounting to hundreds percent they will enrich themselves operating alongside you let them meanwhile you will learn from them the business of running the economy and only when you do that will you be able to build up a communist republic since we must necessarily learn quickly any slackness in this respect is a serious crime and we must undergo this training the severe stern and sometimes even cruel training because we have no other way out 
We must remember that our land is impoverished after many years of trial and suffering and has no socialist France or socialist England as neighbors which could help us with their highly developed technology and their highly developed industry. Bear that in mind. We must remember that at present all their highly developed technology and their highly developed industry belong to the capitalists who are fighting us. Well said. That's perfect quote that encapsulates the Nicaraguan socialist model. All right, well, Romero, we'll let you go. I know uh, you have a time frame, so let's, I know you've made a point to say that you're not on social media other than YouTube just for your productions and your videos and everything, and I applaud you for it because, yeah, you're definitely better off for it. But uh, go ahead and plug your YouTube channel again, and then anything else you may want to say, and then we'll let you go, and then we'll uh, do our little wrap-up here. So you can subscribe to me on YouTube. Just look me up, Ramiro Sebastian Funes, R-A-M-I-R-O, Sebastian Funes, F-U-N-E-Z. And you can check out other videos as well. I have the two-hour Nicaragua Against Empire documentary there. I have several other videos in that series. I've made it a series. So I've interviewed people out there. I was just there a few weeks ago for the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. I have that video. I have a video coming out soon about a women-run coffee cooperative in Nicaragua, a Sandinista coffee cooperative. So you get to see what it's like for women coffee workers in Nicaragua. I also have a video coming out with a speech from a former Sandinista guerrilla sharing his experiences and his outlook of socialism and also a former Contra on why she switched sides and why she's a Sandinista now. So a lot of content coming out. So make sure to check that out soon. The elections are coming up. And if you're interested in visiting Nicaragua, hit me up on, on YouTube. Just comment on one of the videos. I can get you in touch with the organization that I go to when I visit there. They're a really cool organization called Friends of the ATC, the Rural Workers Association. And they have delegations all the time. Two of my homies actually just came back from Nicaragua. We're doing a stream on Saturday about their experience in Nicaragua. So anytime, if you are interested in visiting, it's actually pretty cheap to get there from the U.S. because it's in Central America. It's very cheap when you get there, too. So it's a, a great option if you want to, to visit a, a socialist, anti-imperialist country uh, with a budget. So just hit me up. Cool. Well, thank you, Ramiro. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I just want to say kind of on a, a personal note, like one of the best things about having this podcast for the almost a year now that we've done it is that we've gotten to get in touch with some really well-informed socialists who really know what they're talking about and are also really good speakers who are just so good at like firing people up and like helping us radicalize these kids. And like, you are definitely among them. Like we've had just a handful of guests who are just really good at like, I don't know, like, I feel like you're, you guys are like natural leaders and just natural orators. And yeah, you definitely fall in that camp. So thank you for coming on here. And I feel like we've kind of done you and our listeners an injustice by spending so much of the episodes watching that video and everything. But uh, if you ever want to come back on here and share any more knowledge that you have about Nicaragua or anything else, you are more than welcome anytime you want to talk about anything. So please come back again. Thank you, man. Most definitely, comrades. It's been a pleasure speaking with you guys. Keep doing the great work you guys are doing, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, comrade. See ya. Peace out, guys. Take care. Later. Yeah, he was so good. So great. Dude's awesome. He actually, like, one thing he made me think of was, like, when I listened to the Prolspot episodes about DPRK, I forget which one because they had Comrade Natalie and they had Comrade Zheng Yu, um, both of which I'm trying to reach out to and get them on here to talk about the DPRK because people have been begging us to do a DPRK episode and I would fucking love to. But uh, one of the things that one of them mentioned was that people in the DPRK, they don't 
obviously like spend time on their smartphones or on the computer all day like we do they don't live their lives online they said like one of the things that people do for leisure like particularly young people is that they'll just go out into like a park area with like a speaker on like a wheelbarrow or something and then just play music and dance and they just have like a party and i'm just like that sounds like exactly the lifestyle i want to fucking live but i'm like on my phone all fucking day but yeah they just touch grass it's awesome yeah. But uh, you know, a lot of a lot of socialist communities are like that. You know, when you're living in these areas like I mean, for we look at public housing and we look down on it, like the idea of just being stacked on top of each other. But a lot of these socialist countries that are built that way, I mean, they have little markets built out right in front of it. They're in these really vibrant and active areas. And it's like instead of all of us being miles apart on these little patches of land, they're all really collective and, and together. And they, they really can just walk outside down the street to a park, start playing music and just hang out with a ton of their neighbors. Like it, it's not something we have in capitalist countries. Yeah. Yeah. Like where I've moved to recently, like I'm much closer. Like it's more of the like high rise. Like it's, I'm much physically closer to my neighbors than I was before and where I lived previously. And that's actually helped me build the relationship with my neighbors and it's helping me yeah. radicalize them and like <laughs> establish like, like a whole co parenting thing. And we do communal dinners and stuff like that. It's like that would only happen because I'm in such close proximity with them. They're like, that's yeah. not something I could have done before. We're in the individualistic alienated suburbs that I lived before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no doubt. Well, uh, Sterling, since you just jumped on like a few minutes ago, I mean, welcome by the way, glad you could jump in. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I literally just got off work. I mean, just the capitalist empire is yeah. crushing me this week. I mean, it's no problem because like it actually worked out well because we were able to get through the last of the video and it still took us like almost the entire episode to get through the last 16 minutes of that we had of that video. Yeah. And then we spent, I think, the last 20 minutes or so talking about Romero's actual documentary. I mentioned it before, but I think I cut it because it was in like before we actually started the recording proper. But like I would have streamed Romero's documentary, but a good portion of it is people speaking Spanish with subtitles and it wouldn't have really worked for our audio format yeah. or podcast. So it worked out kind of well to do their PBS documentary and then have Vermito kind of expand on all the failings of the, the liberal uh, viewpoint of it from the PBS point of view and everything. So it, yeah. it, it worked out fine. And I think they make for good episodes regardless. But um, uh, that being said, anything you guys want to talk about since we have Sterling here, we got like, I don't know, probably like 25 minutes before it's like our normal time. What's up? <laughs> Sterling, are you excited for upcoming SawCon? For what? Upcoming SawCon. Man, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> if you had actually got him with that, I would have died laughing, dude. It was, uh, the only reason he did is someone got me online yeah. with it already. No, that was a good That's one, the only reason I mentioned it. It was fucking hilarious. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I, I, I'd shout him out, but I don't remember who specifically got me with that. <laughs> for our listeners, there's no such thing as SawCon. It was going to be a SawCon D's Nuts joke, so... Yeah, for our listeners, I, I had just uh, went to Dragon Con, had a great time, posted some photos from it, and uh, one of our listeners who follows me on Instagram had just said, oh man, Dragon Con looks sick, you going to SawCon? And I was like, oh shit, what's SawCon? And he just like, fuck on these nuts. It was like, okay. God, <laughs> oh, so great. Oh, that's pretty good. It was good, it was good, I give him that. Had a good time. Yeah, I mean, if you guys don't have any other topics, we can wrap it up, but uh, I mean, we could talk about literally anything we want to. We could talk about fucking Trumpers dying of uh, COVID because they just won't get the fucking vaccine. Fucking dummies. No shit. Incredible. Sorry, I'm, I'm multitasking and cooking dinner right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I was listening to the uh, Democracy Now! episode today where it's like the 50th anniversary of uh, Attica prison riots. Yeah. Okay. 
Dude, that shit was fucking crazy, man. Yeah, I'm not super in the loop on that. I was gonna say, you guys been doing any uh, Doom scrolling or some shit? Like, <laughs> I haven't been doing too much Doom scrolling. Uh, I was trying to give myself a break, but I'm about to get back into it. So if you guys have any recommendations, some shit like Bark Beetles, like, I'm totally down. <laughs> I, I would like to do that sometime. Yeah, I don't think we need any more. But I mean, that, that will legitimately be a whole episode. Yeah. I think, like, constantly, at least, like, several times throughout the day, I'm just like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Water wars are coming. And people yeah, around me are like, what the fuck are you talking about? And it's like, dude, even our vice president is talking about it. Like, come on. We're just going to be starting wars over water. You know, like how we've been doing shit over oil for all this time. It's just going to be, oh, they have water. So let's make up some bullshit so that we can go in and take water. So that we can just uphold this bullshit capitalist ideal that we're used to. So that we can just stave off the fucking climate rebellion that should be happening here in the u.s yeah no i mean that is what's going to happen yeah yeah i mean a lot of the areas we have here like the the great lakes and stuff i mean the capitals are just going to completely take over those areas fence them in build the fucking wall and push you know all the working class out of those areas and basically say hey now you have to work for us to give you some of this water this is our water you don't have water and the robot cops are going to protect it yeah Oh, yeah. And like um, like Ramiro was saying, like how he's got the uh, new video coming out with the uh, coffee cooperative. It's like coffee is going to be a extreme luxury item in like the next decade due to climate collapse and global warming. Like that shit's going to go away because it's going to be too hot for any plants to survive, let alone coffee and coffee manufacturing. Yeah. They'll probably find a way to uh, actually poison the lakes and then have these super expensive filters that are the only ways to purify the water where it's drinkable. Oh, my God, dude. So you can't even steal the water. They absolutely would do that. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to put like some fucking random ass chemical in there. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't filter that shit out unless you've got this special fucking government mandated (laughs) thing that you pay out the fucking ass for. And you have to have some kind of fucking... You haven't worked 12 hours today? Sorry, your filter's locked. We're going to have Mad Max here soon. Like, oh my God. I hate it here. It's a shame I don't have any guns. <laughs> that, that would be a fun topic, though, one day, just to dive into the upcoming water wars and all kinds of just crazy theories about that. Dude, I'm so down. Like, <laughs> All right, well, we can wrap it up. Right, I'm let's still get pissed that you brought up debt trap diplomacy. So, like it was a thing. so Sterling, oh, <laughs> Sterling, last week, I forget why I didn't. Oh, we were watching the the fucking PBS documentary, and there was like a quick clip of this guy. He was like a U.S. military guy. He sounded exactly like a Private Cowboy from Full Metal Jacket. He had the exact same accent and voice. And he's in Nicaragua, and he's got like a Nicaraguan woman, obviously like a sex worker, on his shoulder. And he's like, oh, you no. know, Nicaraguan women, they're they're real friendly. They've been they've been real friendly to us, you know, so far at least, you know. And then it just like it was so fucked up. And then somebody off camera goes, "Oh, you got lipstick on you." And he's like, "Oh, oh sorry." Like wiping it off real quick. Like it was just so fucking disgusting. And word goes, because um, I made a comment about how like it's obviously just a repeat of Vietnam and taking advantage of the locals who have no resources because you come in there with your American money and everything and you can just take advantage of people. And then word goes, Mike, why would you why would you denigrate sex workers like that? Like sex work is real work. And then. We, I just went off on like a fucking rant. I was like, Ward, why did you fucking do that? Like, why did you make me do that? And then, and then I happened to get disconnected because my internet is shit. But then him and Romito went on for like another couple of minutes while I was off talking about sex work and explaining 
the actual nuanced Marxist take on it and why we're not just like fucking swerves who hate sex workers. We're not like reactionaries or some shit. And it actually turned out to be a good part of the episode. So I'm not mad that he did it, but I got him back tonight because there was a portion of the documentary talking about how some people like the reactionaries in Nicaragua were trying to say that the communists are just as bad as like Hitler or like the, or just as bad as the American imperialists. And I'm like, Oh, that's kind of like when, uh, Anarchists say that China is imperialist because they're giving loans to Africa and doing the Belt and Road Initiative, and it's like doing the neither Beijing nor Washington bullshit. And it's like if anybody falls for that, like fuck you. Like I mean, well, okay, I don't want to be that rude about it, but like you, you should, should say fuck you, should you, learn. Fuck you if you <laughs> fall for that shit. If, right. if you fall for that shit, we've got some links that we can send you. We will educate you. Like you know, I'm not going to go up in the Discord. Yeah, I will educate you. Yep. Personally, my stance on the sex work thing, and, and it would require us to go into a whole other. <laughs> two-hour tangent, but I am of the belief that sex work could exist under socialism, uh, that sex work does not entirely uh, require the need for capital in the first place. No. That if someone does want to just do that as a job, there will absolutely be people who would like to have that as an option in the world. I mean, there are people who, uh, even in, in capitalist countries, who hire sex workers because they don't have time um, to be in rural relationships or they're just not into that. And it's like, you know, it just comes down to would someone prefer to do that as a job versus working in a factory or something else? Like to me, it's just kind of one other thing. And at the end of the day, what really determines what is and is not socialist is the will of that uh, collective people. So if that socialist country voted no, then it's not socialist there. If they voted yes, then it is socialist there. So everyone who gets in these huge long debates, I feel like is missing the point that socialism is democracy. So if you think your idea outweighs whatever the democratic idea was, you're already missing the whole point of socialism. Well, you yeah, got like, you sort of got at the main point of it, which was that we were, or at least I was saying that like, if people want to do sex work under communism and they're no longer coerced and they're doing it freely out of their pure free will because it's just really something they want to do then great but that yeah. is nowhere near the situation we're in in capitalism where you have the gun of yeah. poverty pointed at you all the time and so your clapback emojis applauding only fans girls are not progressive in any way it's just the same as the rainbow flag on a bomb that's dropped on yemen but go ahead Ward, sorry i agree like exhibitionists will exist regardless of capitalism or communism like that's just something that they are into and that they're willing to produce and like I was saying, like if you are so driven to go to porn, like there are worker-owned porn, and there's exhibitionists, like yeah, those yeah. people will exist regardless. Like yeah. so, whether we overthrow capitalism or not, like you're gonna have exhibitionists that's gonna want to do shit, and they're gonna want to put it on camera, or they're gonna want to do it with other people, and like, but it's not the vast majority of what's currently happening under capitalism. I agree with that. All right, let's wrap it up. Stick around for one more second, Sterling. We'll do the plugs, and then you can hear the Patreon subscribers. Since we ha- we have forty now, I don't know if you guys realize we have Holy forty shit. Patreon subscribers, and I think I'm going to draw the line at fifty. I think when we get fifty, applause. Um, that's applause. when I'll just I'll only read out the new ones instead of reading out all of them because it gets to be a little too much at that point. But um, okay. Ward, go ahead well, and hey, your, go ahead. Sorry. Can I, I hate to jump out, but I just finished this dinner. Okay, and yeah, I was going to set down to it. So let me plug the Twitter and then bounce, Sterling. Twitter, Twitter is at Turn Leftist Pod, and 
I know I'm jumping off before the Patreons, but you guys are fucking amazing. Thank you so much. You have no idea how excited we get for every single one yeah. that, that joined. Like, we literally in the Discord talk about every single one that joined and talk about how badass they probably are. We have all kinds of theories about every one of you. And, so, you know, that, you, got, you got a lot to live up to. Just wait, just wait till you hear what you think of Jean-Claude Manhand. Right. Yeah. All right, buddy. I'll see you. Right, appreciate it, guys. Peace. Bye. Word, go ahead and plug your Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling, no underscore. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. Hell yeah. And then uh, for Jaron, his website is jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. And you can pick up his latest book, The Politics of Fear. Or if we wait a little longer, you can get his next book, which is coming out that he's working on and uh, hurting his heart by writing on Adderall, apparently. I didn't know he was doing that to himself, poor guy. But uh Thank you for your service, Jaron. And then for Cosper, I'll plug their Patreon. That's patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And then, uh, yeah, for anything else, just find Linktree, Linktree slash Turn Leftist. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Turn Leftist. You can find me on Instagram at turnleftist1312 or turnleftist1917 when they ban that one. And uh, that's about it other than the Patreon subscribers. So once again, thank you so much to all our Patreon subscribers. Colton, Ian, Michael, not me, L. Robert, Allison, Zach, James, Rave Enigma, Marvin, K. Ryda, Not Drinking Water 69, A Second James, Mike, Still Not Me, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jaron has the best opinions because, of course, he does. Jared, yep. <laughs> Hayden, Another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro, You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, A Third James, The First James, though. Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bovey Fan 420, who I actually just talked to for the first time on Instagram the other day. I actually got to meet the John Bovey Fan 420. Thank you for your support for all this time. Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhans, <laughs> Mail, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Thank you all so much. We, we literally cannot thank you enough. Someday you guys are going to send us to the DPRK and we will be forever thankful for you. Yeah. I, I just thank you so much. Yeah, I, I truly want that. Like, getting an editor would be sweet so we can pump out some more episodes per week. But, like, that long term goal of going to the DPRK is like, uh, cream my pants. It's no, I mean, incredible. in all seriousness, I think we are actually getting to the point where we can probably afford an editor. I was talking to uh, Madboy, who is one of the Patreon subscribers and is a, you know, a good comrade in our Discord. And that's actually what they do for a living is sound editing. So I think that'll actually work out well. We may be able to work out something with the money that we're making so far to pay Mad Boys. So anybody who um, I know up until this point, we have, all, we have absolutely told everyone, please do not feel obligated to subscribe to us on Patreon and give us any of your money because we obviously understand just as well as anybody how awful it is to make money under capitalism and how hard earned that is. And, you know, we didn't want anybody to feel obligated to give us any of it. But I think at this point we will be giving that money to Mad Boy to edit our episodes. So we will actually be going to a worthy cause at that point. But um, wait for further developments on that. If you're on the fence about subscribing, let me actually talk to Mad Boy and work that out. But yeah, so that's a potential thing in the works. Unless you have anything else, where we can wrap it up there? No, I think we had a great episode. And uh, thank you so much to all the Patreons. It's absolutely humbling to think that you guys would think we're awesome enough that you guys would donate your hard-earned money to towards bunch of red fash tankies yeah right <laughs> all right buddy well thanks for coming on i'll see you later yep see ya bye everyone